Hi, everyone, and welcome back to the Dayson Digest. My name is Ray Perez, one of the third-year infectious disease fellows working with the Dayson Network. Uh, this is a very exciting episode. This week, we are coming to you live from ID Week in Boston, Massachusetts. Um, look out later this month for our newsletter, which will focus on all of the exciting research that our center has been putting out and is presenting at ID Week this year. We are so excited to share that with you. But for now, we have a fun article to discuss, and I have two of my favorite people and close colleagues from here at Duke to talk about a great article. Um, joining me today is Dr. Molly Hillenbrand. She is an assistant professor of medicine at Duke University, where she also serves as an associate program director for the Infectious Diseases Fellowship and leads quality improvement efforts for the division. Hi, Molly, and thanks so much for joining us. Happy to be here. Thanks, Ray. I also have the pleasure of introducing Dr. Ahmad Murad. He is a fellow third, third year infectious disease fellow here at Duke University and a member of the Duke Clinical Research Institute, where he is working to bring all of these very exciting clinical trials to Duke. Um, one of my favorite people. Thanks for coming, Ahmad. Yeah, thanks for having me, Ray. So today, the article that we have, and you can check this out in the show notes if you want to follow along is Diagnostic Accuracy of Hospital Antibiograms in Predicting the Risk of Antimicrobial Resistance in Enterobacteriaceae Isolates, a nationwide multicenter evaluation at the Veterans Health Administration. This was by Shinya Hasegawa and Dan Lavorsi with other colleagues. It was published in CID just the last month in August, 2023. And again, you can get that link in the show notes. So this set the stage a bit on why this trial was done. So the Infectious Disease Society of America, the European ID Society, uh, EFSMID, and the Surviving Sepsid Guidelines all recommend that local antimicrobial prescribing guidelines be based on your local epidemiology based largely upon antibiograms. Antibiograms, as we all know, are very helpful in, uh, in monitoring antimicrobial resistant trends and for our own epidemiologic investigations for comparing resistance rates across institutions. But another thing that we're often doing is using these antibiograms to choose empiric therapy for individual patients. And when you actually look into the literature, there are relatively few validation studies that have been performed to see how good is an institution-level antibiogram at predicting individual patient outcomes. And so this study sought to really quantitatively assess the diagnostic accuracy of a standardized hospital antibiogram from a previous calendar year as a prediction tool for antimicrobial resistance at the patient level. In this study, they focused on the two most common species of Enterobacteriaceae, E. coli, and Klebsiella that were not in the Erogenes family. So just as to start, guys, as a point of discussion, how regularly do you guys find yourself using your facility antibiogram to guide empiric therapy. Has, have these performance characteristics been something you've worried about in the past? Yeah, Ray, um, I use them pretty often. Um, and, you know, this study is at, is at the VA. A lot of our work is at University Hospital, but we do rotate at the VA as, as fellows and um, as faculty. But um, I'm, I'm reaching for these antibiograms almost every time that there's, um, there's a decision to be made about uh, antimicrobial therapy for an identified isolate. Um, so much so, I think, to the point that uh, for our institution, a lot of us has, have memorized uh, the, these antibiograms, and, and we know what, what works and what we think doesn't work for these um, isolates. So I do think it's a, it's a big part of our practice. Yeah, I agree. I, I find myself commonly using these, particularly for um, the times when we are consulted on these patients, um, but we don't have the susceptibility data back yet. And I think that, hap that most commonly happens um, 
in patients that we see with surgical site infections or other deep tissue infections. I feel like oftentimes when we're called to comment on E. coli and Klebsiella, it's really in the context of pretty extensive drug resistance. So I'm not sure for these isolates in particular for things like pilo or even bacteremia. Um, as ID consultants, we're, we're maybe not often called to help with the empiric therapy up front, but we certainly get called later on. But I, I certainly think in in situations where we have deep tissue cultures, where we're thinking about what we're going to start up front, um, I find myself commonly looking at these. So to get into what they actually did with this study, so this study took place across the entire Veterans Health Administration System. It included 120 and over 1,400 clinics. They used a huge data set going from January 2000 to December of 2020, so 20 years worth of uh, microbiologic data they included here. Uh, they included all clinical isolates for E. coli and Klebsiella species, excluding erogenes. And then taking these data, they created standardized antibiograms for each VA facility. They defined uh, each VA facility as a hospital and all of the clinics that refer to that inpatient site. And for each facility, they generated each cl clinical year from 2019. The antibiograms were created according to CSLI guidelines and isolates per patient each calendar year uh, for the designated species and only if there are at least 30 isolates available. So one thing I think is interesting about the way they chose to do this is they combined the inpatient and outpatient data. It was the main VA hospital and all of the clinics associated with that. And so I'm sure we'll talk more about this later, but you know, I think a lot of institutions use this approach. They just kind of go to the micro lab and bring all the isolates together. Do you, do you feel like that is helpful approach since the patients are coming from the community or do you worry that the sick patients you might be seeing in consultation in the hospital and what their susceptibility might be like yeah that's a, that's a really good question Ray. i think a lot of the times we're seeing patients um in the hospital maybe less sick who have community acquired gram negative infections and um and then the ones with more extensive infection may be uh having you know hospital acquired infections and i think when, when thinking about where the isolate came from, knowing whether it's a hospital-acquired infection or a community-acquired infection does make me think of the disease state a little differently um, in terms of therapy. Um, I think it would be, I, I think I would be interested to see if hospital-acquired um, infections or patients who have um, isolates from inpatient um, hospitalization have different susceptibility patterns than those um, with community-acquired or outpatient being treated um, uh, there. So I think it makes sense to uh, combine them in that we are treating both patients. Um, and, you know, having that data is helpful. I think it would be interesting to see if there are any differences. I, yeah, I agree. I think it would be helpful to have at least some of the separate data because I think the antibiotics that you're reaching for, as well as the acuity of the patients that you're seeing, is just really different in both of those settings um, when you're thinking about empiric therapy. So if you're thinking about just kind of an ambulatory you know, uncomplicated cystitis, you're really reaching for more of those oral agents. Whereas if someone is sick enough to be septic and they're getting admitted to the hospital, you're really starting empiric, you know, parenteral therapy up front. And so I think kind of breaking those down so that you maybe had a little bit more of a detailed view may have been helpful here. Awesome, thanks. Um, so that's how they created the antibiograms. And then looking on the other hand to the patient level data set. So they created this using isolates from patients who did not have any positive cultures of the same organism at the same facility within the preceding 12 months. So the authors were presuming that, hey, if the patient had 
old urine culture data that was recent, you're probably going to base your empiric therapy just on that and not on an antibiogram. So I thought that was a clever kind of addition they made to the way they ran this study and thinking about real world applications. And then they sought to actually check out the prediction performance of these antibiograms. They did this by generating two by two contingency tables and calculated sensitivities and specificities uh, for using the prior year's antibiogram ability to predict a given isolate's antimicrobial susceptibilities. They generated receiver operating characteristic curves for uh, the most common antimicrobial categories. This include uh, trimethoprim, sulfamazoxazole, fluoroquinolones, and ceftriaxone. And they also uh, generated these characteristics based on different interpretation thresholds. So when would you say, mm, I'm not going to trust that antibiotic? Is that it? 80%, 85%, 90%, or 98%. Previous research had shown that most physicians pick something in that 85 to 90%, 95% range in order to make that clinical decision of what's my cutoff. And so that we, they interestingly helped us try to think about which cutoff should we be using. So looking at the results, so for the E. coli antibiograms, they used over a million isolates from almost 700,000 patients um, this allowed for over 25,000 combinations of given antibiogram and patient-level isolate. For the Klebsiella antibiograms, it's a little bit fewer. They had 400,000 isolates from over 300,000 patients, but they were still able to make um, over 23,000 group comparisons. The median and interquartile range of proportion for susceptible isolates was quite variable for each antimicrobial. Um, Though I thought it was worth noting that the ceftriaxone susceptibility was overall pretty high in this cohort, a median of 95% with a lower quartile of ceftriaxone susceptibility at 93%. You know, compared to a lot of more modern and recent studies looking at the presence of ESBLs, that tends to be closer to a 10 to 15% number. So this tends overall seem to be, since a lot of data is a little bit older, a less sick cohort and less resistant cohort. The prediction performance of hospital antibiograms from the prior calendar year to predict the susceptibilities for a given patient was rated as poor. So they define this as an AUC of less than 0.7 for almost all of the bug drug comp combinations with the exception of carbapenems. Um, so it really, unfortunately, they saw that these facility antibiograms did not do a great job of predicting antimicrobial resistance for an individual patient. Um, and, and if you really did want to try to use them, you had to use really high interpretation thresholds. So not something like that 85 or 90%, but really getting closer to that 95 or 98% cutoff if you really wanted to trust the sensitivity. And at that point, the specificity would drop substantially. So if you wanted to get your sensitivity over 90%, you were seeing your specificity tend to drop to less than 10%. So really disappointing uh, performance characteristics for these antibiograms they saw in this study. So to jump right in, you know, when you guys read this, you mentioned at the beginning of the pod, hey, I use antibiograms almost every day. Is this gonna change the way that you're thinking about using those antibiograms? Are you throwing them out the window or you think they still are gonna have some utility for you? I think it's a good question. Um, I think for me, you know, the antibiogram is sort of one very small piece of data in the overall larger puzzle, right? Like who is my host? What's the clinical picture that I'm looking at here? What's the infectious syndrome that I'm looking at? And um, 
what antibiotics can I use in this patient, whether, you know, from like allergies, contraindications, drug interactions, et cetera. And so I think for me, um, I still, I still will use them as part of my clinical practice, but I think this is, I think a very helpful framework to really think about the limitations of those, um, as, as I'm thinking about patients in the clinical setting. Yeah, I completely agree with Molly. And I think this, this study is a good reminder to us too, that, um, uh, you know, population level data may not necessarily apply to an individual. And so you know, having that information for your hospital population um, is important. But then, you know, when looking at the individual, you just have to be a little more specific in yeah. tailoring your your regimen. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, th I think it really stressed to me that at the end of the day, the individual patients, like personal clinical risk factors are really the most important thing. And so while, you know, the antibiogram is a great tool to help you think of what's my pretest probability of resistance here? I still have to apply that extra task of, all right, this is, I'm assuming this is the baseline, but what are the additional factors that might make resistance more or less likely in this patient? And really, I can't just go with the endobiogram, but I'm using it as a starting point upon which to make my clinical decision. Um, and I, I honestly feel like I've been less rigorous about using that mindset in the past. And this is a, a nice wake up call for me to, to do that more rigorously moving forward. Yeah, that's a really good point. Like it, it, it is a starting point and then you modify your probabilities as you, you know, as you learn more about the patient and as you're, you're working through the data. But I don't think, I don't think this study will um, change the fact that we are going to, the antibiograms serve as like the base for, you know, for where we go to for, for that initial plan or that initial, you know, um, a therapeutic strategy that we pick. So I don't think that that changes things at all in that sense. Yeah, and I think from an institutional programmatic perspective, it does still have a lot of value. And I think about when we're making clinical practice guidelines for the Durham VA, you know, we at our most recent environment, we saw that our doxycycline susceptibility for staff dropped to 80%. And so at that point, like, can we realistically be recommending that for all comers if our pretest probability for the general person is getting that low? I mean, I think it really does still have value on those larger programmatic levels as well, too. Another thing I really wanted to talk to, about was I, you know, I found that threshold analysis really interesting. You know, as I pushed myself to think about what's my cutoff of I feel comfortable, you know, is it is it 90%? Is it 95%? Is it, well, would I push it? I just admitted that 80 is clearly too low for me when I, was, I gave that doxycycline example. Um, but did reading through this and seeing the way that the curves shifted with different thresholds change the way you're going to think about your thresholds? Yeah, that's, yeah, that's a really good thing. Um, that's a really good point. Uh, I thinking about it, you know, clinically, obviously we try to reach for, um, we try to reach for the drug with the highest percentage, um, susceptibility. So, but I think for, for me, my threshold is somewhere around the 90% range. Um, but you know, with, with that, with that said, I think it, it's also something that can be dynamic based on the person in front of you. I think that uh, oftentimes when we talk about these things or when we're reading them in papers or things like that, it the impression shouldn't be that, you know, we're starting this medication and then we're sticking with it. And then we're stuck with this, like, you know, 83% uh, susceptibility that we're having to like, you know, figure out what to do when the patient doesn't do well. I think it's, um, it's dynamic. So again, kind of using it as a, as a starting, starting point, I would say I'm looking at the, like the 90% range maybe, but if things aren't going well and you don't have susceptibilities yet, but things aren't going well, um, you know, I think that modifying that, making sure that your plan is dynamic and you're going to re reaching to other agents where, um, 
uh, you may be more more comfortable treating the patient in front of you with, uh, I think is something to think about as well. Yeah, I agree. I think, again, for me, it, it really all depends on the clinical context in terms of what threshold I would be most comfortable choosing, right? But I do think this data is helpful for me as I think about that moving forward. Um, and I, I agree with exactly what Ahmad said, just kind of consistent clinical reassessment. I think the other thing that I always try and keep in mind, um, particularly when I'm rounding, you know, on our ID consult service at a really like tertiary quaternary referral center is that oftentimes when I'm meeting patients, they have already been extensively antibiotic exposed before they come to me. Um, and so I think, you know, trying to figure out that data when I can, what sort of antimicrobials they've seen in the outpatient setting or in previous hospital admissions at other facilities, um, which I know is, you know, they had excluded people that had had prior culture data here as well. But I think when I think about my general clinical practice and most of the patients that I'm seeing, that really is sort of more of the, the population that I think about. It's pretty rare that I meet somebody who's like coming into the hospital for the first time with, you know, E. coli pyelonephritis and secondary bacteremia with no prior antibiotic exposure, um, where I'd really be thinking empirically about, about truly just the antibiogram data to like inform the decisions I'm making about therapy. But yeah, I agree. It's, it's a helpful starting point. I think these curves are helpful for thinking about um, at different thresholds. How do I modify my, my pretest probability? And then how do I continue to clinically monitor the patient, make sure they're on good therapy and getting better? Yeah, to, to derail your uh, talking points a little bit, Ray, um, I have a question for you two. You know, Molly brought up the point that, you know, we work at a quaternary like referral center. A lot of the patients we see are transferred from other places. Um, the micro data, sometimes, you know, they come with some micro data um, with them and we're, you know, we're continuing to treat them for uh, whatever disease process um, that they were being treated before they came. But sometimes we don't have susceptibilities when when they come and then they're not no longer growing the isolate, you know, at the thing. So how do you think of those patients? You know, those aren't patients that um, whose isolates would have been included in your institutional antibiogram. They're coming from a different institution. Are you applying your institution biogram onto their, you know, further therapy if you don't have fresh susceptibilities? Um, obviously, clinical context matters here, but, you know, how do you think about those patients? I think I've always struggled with that. I, I think it's a tough point that I think we face all the time. Um, and so I think part of it depends on where they're coming from. So if they're coming from a pure academic institution, but maybe we just have a very particular resource. Um, if they're coming from UNC down the street, I'm going to think that our antibiogram is fair, still fairly representative. If they're coming from a much more rural area um, where I would expect them to have a little bit less antibiotic exposure, and I, I kind of will adjust what that starting pretest probability is. But then I find myself really just going to these clinical risk factors that we've been discussing. Is this someone who is highly antibiotic exposed? Is this someone um, who has like a high degree of uh, immune suppression that I'm worried that if I miss, it's going to have more severe consequences for that patient. You know, I think getting at some of the discussion points we're having before, what's that threshold going to be is going to depend a lot on how sick is the patient. If they're in the ICU on two pressers, gosh, I'm not comfortable with much less than 95% because I'm worried about the consequences of she's making the wrong decision versus if they're coming in with a community-acquired urine infection and they're really doing okay, they're just really here for other reasons, then, you know, even all the way down to 80, I'm going to get a, it's just empiric therapy, I'm going to get a definite result within the next 24, 48 hours in the micro lab, I'm okay if I've missed a little bit. And so I think how sick is the patient? Um, 
you know, I think I, I tend to use our environment as a starting point since it's at least somewhat representative locally, because I think we do get, still get a lot of patients from a pretty wide catchment area since those do include our outpatient and inpatient data together. Um, and then really using those patient respecters to adjust up and down from there. One more thing I did want to definitely talk about as we're early on harping on the antibiograms and the way they're designed um, is the CSLI cutoffs. Um, we, those have been changing dramatically. We've done several uh, newsletters about this recently. There are new requirements for all of the, I know a lot of our network hospital sites are working really hard on documenting all of the, uh, which cutoffs they're using for which drugs, if they're on FDA or uh, the CLSI cutoffs, what their plan for updating them is. Um, with antibiogram data, you are definitionally on a lag of a year or sometimes two. And as we're redefining these cutoffs so rapidly, um, does that change the way that you think about them? You know, I, I, they actually did a supplementary analysis. Um, if you are, if you feel like pulling up the supplement um, where they talk about, hey, if we apply the modern fluoroquinolone cutoffs to these antibiograms, performance characteristics for four fluoroquinolones get even worse than they already were when they're looking at sensitivity and specificity. Um, and so things get even tougher when you're retroactively applying that. You know, given the challenges in keeping up with it, how are you thinking about antibiograms in that setting too? Yeah, that's one of the limitations of using data that spans like decades, you know, things are changing rapidly from year to year, but then you have data that's spanning decades in which clinical practice may not have changed until like halfway through that period, for example. And um, it's hard, it's hard to know what to do with that information. Um, I think what this emphasizes is that all this, to Molly's point, is just a piece, one piece of the puzzle, um, and trying to understand the broader context, which is kind of been the theme of our discussion. Um, but yeah, just take the C CLSI cutoffs with a grain of salt um, and understand that using population or, or large data sets like this that span decades, you know, may not be the best way to um, determine accuracy or determine sensitivity specificity of something that is a moving target. Yeah, I agree. Again, I think um, one of the, the overall themes we've been discussing is that there's certainly significant limitations with using antibiograms on like an individual patient level. And I think this is just sort of another point in that conversation that adds to those limitations and just something that you have to keep in mind when you're using this tool in your clinical practice as you're out on the ward seeing these patients. One thing that always comes up with these sorts of studies, it's a VA study. It's mostly men. Uh, almost all of these isolates were urine cultures. And so it's, this raises a lot of questions about how we think about antibiograms more generally, and I think all the principles we've, we've discussed um, do still apply to other sites and would likely apply to women, but are do you think this study might have been very different outside of the VA population? Do you still view this study as being pretty broadly applicable? I think in general, you know, some of my big take-home points are really just thinking about the limitations of these studies, right, and recognizing um, again, that it's just one piece of the larger puzzle and that clinical context really matters. So I think for me, while I wouldn't necessarily apply these analysis to, to our patient population, even at like a university hospital where we see really a, a much broader case mix as well, um, in addition to 
sort of a, a much more diverse population, including more women. So I think um, I, I think the take home message and the highlights are still kind of the same for me, which are that these data are limited. It's tough to use longitudinal data on an individual patient level when things are changing so rapidly um, and that you really have to take these into clinical context. So I think I think those lessons are the same for me in my practice, even though I'm not really primarily at a VA facility. Bringing up the point of VA data, you know, the using VA data is like a double-edged sword. You get, you have, a, you have a large number of patients. Um, the healthcare system is designed in such a way that you can pull a lot of data for analyses and do these large population-wide analyses. And so, you know, that's a good thing. And then the, the negative part or limitation is the generalizability of that of that data to the point that you made. Like, how how do how do we externally validate this? And I think it would be interesting to compare. Uh, data from you know community hospitals or academic centers over that same period of time to this to this VA data and see if there are differences. Um, one thing you know that I think about with these patients too, like you had mentioned, you know older older males, a lot of them have you know bladder outlet obstruction. Um, a lot of them have you know what we would call asymptomatic bacteria, but others may uh, be tempted to to treat them. And so in these patients, we oftentimes see them getting exposed to very long durations of antibiotics. Uh, multiple different antibiotics over a very short period of time. And so, you know, that might be contributing to some of the stuff here. And thinking about these patients as well, with them predominating your population, um, you know, defining your endpoint as like a test of cure, for example, uh, how, you know, how you define that test of cure, you know, a lot of these, a lot of these studies, when they look at um, uh, UTIs, for example, their test of cure is, is microbiological eradication, which we know from all the studies about asymptomatic bacteria is not maybe the best, maybe not the best endpoint to use. So I think um, taking all that together, um, I would I would be interested in seeing that you know the community level data uh, over that same period of time. But I do understand the limitations of um, VA data specifically in this context. Um, In terms of where do we go from here, a lot of the discussion revolves around the idea of like, oh, the, you know, the best way to get around this is to match the right antibiogram to the right patient. And so thinking about increasingly complex uh, antibiograms, we're getting down into patient population subsets so you can try to have more accurate data. You know, the authors, and many people have proposed this, I've been to sessions at Shea last year where they were talking about how to step up your antibiogram and think about adding conditionals in there or looking just at your ICU population. Um, but the authors make a very good point that that's challenging, particularly for smaller centers. And they make the argument that, hey, the real thing that we should be doing is submitting to our AI overlords and being able to try to come up with some predictive algorithms um, using big data to, to be helping guide empiric therapy. Um, there's been a lot of discussion of AI here at ID Week. It was the theme of the opening plenary. I'm curious to hear your guys' opinions. Do you think that is indeed the way of the future? Do you still like the idea of an enhanced antibiogram instead as being a little bit more practical? I would say the limitations of that being hard for smaller institutions is probably true uh, uh, still for smaller places as well. Um, curious to see what you guys think the next steps here are. Yeah, that's. I'm really glad that we're talking about AI and machine learning. Um, so I, you know, I've learned, I've been learning more about AI and machine learning over the past couple of months, and and applying it to something like this. You know, having um, more complexity in your model is not necessarily a good thing, and may not necessarily improve the accuracy of what you're trying to do. Um, 
when you're trying to all these models that that we're talking about, uh, for example, in this study that where they you know fit an ROC curve, et cetera, you know they're assuming linear relationships between predictors and outcomes, and and uh, applying um, a methodology that we're very familiar with, which is you know some kind of logistic or linear regression, um, and in 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 those contexts, it might be more appropriate to go with the less complex models in order to find your um, accurate and uh, uh, in order to um, have an accurate predictor. When you when you start moving to machine learning, the the advantage of machine learning is that you can have nonlinear relationships built into the model, or the model adjusts or uh, you know modifies its um, um, uh, predictors based on relationships that be that may be nonlinear. And so there's the advantage there. The problem is that you're at risk of overfitting your model um, to the data that you're training it on. And so then when you take it to the real world to, to apply it, it actually doesn't work well at all. And going to a less is more approach with like a sim simple linear or, or logistic regression to build these predictive models may be, may be best. The other thing to be really careful with, um, with machine learning is using um, data that spans over time, just like we talked about where, where things are changing. Um, because then you're you're training your model on a data set that um, essentially what the model does is memorizes the data set. And then once you try to take it outside of that data set, um, you run into issues with it actually not being a very good predictor. But there is something to be said about using machine learning in this context. There may be, you know, we know how to do this, for example, for latent class analysis. You know, there may be something in there in these predictors that that we don't exactly know how or, or we don't exactly see the relationship. But and machine learning models able to do that. So I think there is some value there, um, but I would just caution that uh, people tend to overstate how machine learning or AI is gonna you know, be the end all, be all end all for our problems. But I, I don't think it's it's that simple. Yeah, I think that's a really great point, Amon. And I, I think for me, um, I will be curious to see how AI technology and machine learning continue to evolve throughout my time um, in clinical practice. I think, Right now, while this technology is still really new and young, I think for us as subspecialists, we are the people who are called in when when the story isn't really clear or what to do next is really unknown. And so for us, you know, I don't see it replacing our history and physical and our clinical assessment, at least in the near term. We'll see how things shake out longer term. I guess, Ray, a question that I have for you as the stewardship expert among us, how do you see this? Um, how do you see kind of that concept and these ideas influencing the stewardship space? Yeah, I mean, I think at the end of the day, I find myself agreeing with the authors in that as much as the idea of some of these enhanced antibiograms sound, when I think about the practical real world application of the goal for these is not for us as subspecialists to be using it. The goal is what's a readily accessible tool for most of the clinicians out there in our hospital to be able to rapidly deploy. And if, if you had 50 different antibiograms to choose from, I, I have a really hard time seeing that work. And so I, there's something elegant about the idea of, you know, you're going to, you know, patients coming in with cystitis and you're going to order antibiotics and you get an epic pop-up that's like, hey, this patient has high risk features. Like I would actually think about bumping them up to cefepime instead of the usual ceftriaxone for treatment of this infection or hey 
this patient has really low risk. Like I would consider bumping them down to Teflex for treatment of this, uh, you know, urine infection instead of going all the way up to a fluoroquinolone here. Um, and I think there's some relatively easy nudges that you could build in if you could get a model that has reasonable performance characteristics in a way that can be more. And again, I, I, when I think about what makes for a good stewardship intervention, I really think about it's all about the process. You know, like we know most of the things we need to know, but how can we get people on board with becoming part of that process and, and applying these things that we know and sharing that information in, in, in a ready way. And so, um, now granted, the the QI literature is filled with tears of uh, hopeful uh, techno technological interventions that have failed, and and even as something as simple as like I have proposed, but. I do think, um, especially as we're seeing like a lot of our frontline clinician workforce in the, in the hospital change, those sorts of support tools are more likely to be the way of the future. You, you know, you brought up a good point and we've, you know, touched on this too, is uh, risk stratification. So, we, you know, we've said a lot, if this patient is low risk, I'm going to, you know, be okay with a lower threshold cutoff for susceptibility. If they're high risk for presumably what we mean by low risk or high risk is either for resistance or bad outcomes. And I think, you know, with other things in ID too, is that the issue is not um, what to do when we know somebody is high risk or low risk, but it's like, how do you risk stratify in the first place? Are we risk stratifying the right way? Is there something that we're not picking up in our, you know, risk stratification tools or acumen that we're using? And um, that, that may be a, an avenue for, machi for machine learning tools to like try to find things that we can use to more accurately risk stratify. And then risk stratification too, you also have to think about individualization um, as well. So some tools to improve, you know, frontline physicians ability to risk stratify to then select the right regimen, I think is also another avenue that needs to be explored. Awesome. Well, thank you guys so much. This has been an absolutely fantastic conversation, a really interesting article. I look forward to discussing antibiograms more with everyone out there in the DASON network. If you're working on your antibiogram and you have questions on how to make it better, don't hesitate to reach out to your DASON liaison. They are experts in this. They do it all the time um, and would love to help you think through about how to best incorporate that into your recommendations at your institution. Um, as a reminder, again, keep an eye out for our review of ID Week coming out in the newsletter later, later this month. And until next time, thanks everyone.